All right, well, turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation in chapter 7. Revelation 7. As we continue our journey through the book of Revelation, we're coming this morning to chapter 7. Last week, in chapter 6, we saw the scroll with seven seals, and those seals began to be broken open. Those seals represent judgments or unfolding stages in God's judgment against Israel and Jerusalem. And the final seal on that scroll, the seventh seal, will be broken open in chapter 8. But in between, in chapter 7, we have an interlude, an intermission. So just kind of zooming out, big picture again, what we're talking about in the book of Revelation, Jesus is bringing a covenant lawsuit against Israel and Jerusalem because they have rejected him and killed him. And so... The judgments that are unfolding here line up with what we saw in Matthew 24 when we studied that in the fall, as we see the judgment in AD 70 that ultimately falls on Jerusalem and the temple. Here in chapter 7, John sees two groups of people, or maybe it's just one group. We'll talk about that as we go this morning. And this is a passage that is heavily debated. Lots of people have different opinions about who the 144,000 in chapter 7 are. What does it mean that they're sealed? We'll try to answer some of those questions this morning as we go, but let's begin by reading Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. 
For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. <clears throat> well, we don't have time for every detail that's here in the passage this morning. Some of these things, like the creatures we've already seen, and some of these worship songs we've already talked about, and it's a lot of the same content in those songs that we're seeing over again. So we're going to focus this morning on the main things that are the, the new things that are introduced in the chapter here. And as this chapter opens, God is about to send judgment. Right? The seventh seal is about to be opened. Remember, the judgment is going to fall where? On Israel, on Jerusalem, and the temple. But the judgment won't fall until something specific happens. First, before he sends the judgment, God will seal his servants. And John hears that the number of those who are sealed is 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. So this judgment that is coming will come in God's timing, not a minute before. And this shows us, again, God's providence. He's totally in control of human history. These churches need to hear that reminder because things may get a bit ugly in the near future for them. And the same is true for us today. We need to remember that there's nothing happening in the world that is somehow outside of God's control. He's not surprised by anything. What happens, happens according to his plan and in his timing for his purposes. What does it mean that these 144,000 are sealed? Well, what's our rule of interpretation as we go through the book of Revelation? When we're trying to understand something, where should we look for an explanation? Where does John get most of his language and symbolism from? From the Old Testament. And the Old Testament background here is going to help us to understand what's going on with this sealing. So I'm going to have you turn to Ezekiel chapter 9. That's the only other place I'm going to have you turn to this morning. And that's the main passage that is in the background here in Revelation 7. But while you're turning there, I want to point out a couple of other background texts that will fill out the picture for us. So you're turning to Ezekiel. It's one of the major prophets. Okay? But while you're turning, tune in and listen for a few other background passages. And the first one is Exodus 12. This is a familiar story. In Exodus 12, we have the story of the Passover. God is about to rescue Israel from Egypt. And he's been sending a series of judgments on the land of Egypt, the plagues. And now the final judgment, the 10th plague, is about to fall. Just like in Revelation, the seventh seal is about to be broken open. Okay? Here in Egypt, it's the final plague, judgment, that's about to fall. But before God sends that judgment... He gives instructions to the Israelites to mark their homes. The Passover lambs are killed. The blood of the lambs is applied to the doorways of their homes. And then when God comes in judgment on Egypt, he passes over the homes that are marked and they escape judgment. In the same way, in Revelation 7, the 144,000 are marked with a seal so that God's judgment will not fall on them. Okay? 
Now, another helpful passage in the background here is Deuteronomy 6. This is where God gives his people his law word that we call the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then God tells his people that these words that he's giving them should be bound on their hands and on their forehead, along with being on the doorways of their houses. So just like the Israelite homes in Egypt were marked by the blood in order to escape judgment, now the Israelite homes and the Israelites themselves are to be marked by God's law. And the mark goes symbolically on their forehead, just like in Revelation 7, the 144,000 are marked on their forehead. Now, we're going to come to Ezekiel 9 in just a moment, but one more background passage I want to summarize for you, and that's Exodus 28. In this chapter, God's instructions for the high priest say that he's supposed to wear a gold plate, and the gold plate says, holy to the Lord. And verse 38 of Exodus 28 says, it shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So he is set apart, he's holy, with a mark on his forehead that signifies acceptance before the Lord. Okay? So with all of that in mind, now you're in Ezekiel 9, let's look at this passage. Verse 1. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. So we have a city that judgment is about to fall on. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So you have judgment that's about to fall on the city. You have the, the, the executioners with their weapons who are coming. And with them comes another guy who's got a writing case. Which doesn't really fit in with the weapons. So you're kind of going, what's about to happen here? Verse 3, now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Okay, that's the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem. Okay, so now we know this is the city of Jerusalem. And put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So the man with the writing case has this case because he's supposed to go mark on the foreheads of a particular group of people in the city of Jerusalem. And what's the group of people? It's the people who sigh and groan over the abominations. In other words, this, these are the people who are upset when they look around at what's going on in Jerusalem and they see people breaking God's law. These are the people who love God's law and they're getting a mark on their forehead. All right, pick it up in verse 5. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women. But touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. 
Then he said to them, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking, I was left alone. I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? And of course, the answer is no. The remnant is those who are marked. They're escaping the judgment. God's not going to destroy the remnant. He's preserving for himself a remnant of people who won't be destroyed in the judgment. Verse 9, then he said to me, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded me. So in Ezekiel 9, we have judgment specifically on Jerusalem. And even more specifically, the temple is targeted for judgment. If we turned, by the way, to Ezekiel chapter 10, we would see that the judgment involves fire from the altar being thrown down. And we're in Revelation 7 this morning. If we turn to Revelation 8, guess what we would see? Fire from the altar being thrown down in judgment. Okay, same thing. But those who are marked on the forehead here in Ezekiel 9 are preserved. The judgment doesn't fall on them. So who are they? Well, in Ezekiel 9, they're the ones who sigh and groan over all the abominations. In other words, they're the ones who love God's law. Their lives are marked by obedience to God's law. Like those in Deuteronomy 6 who bind God's law on their forehead. Their lives are marked by his law. They're the ones who remain holy, like the high priest in Exodus 28. So they escape the judgment that's about to fall, like the Israelites in Exodus 12, whose homes were marked by the blood. Okay, so back in Revelation 7, John clearly has these ideas in his mind. He's using Ezekiel 9. But who are the 144,000. That's a very specific number. John doesn't see the 144,000 and count them. Rather, he hears the number. What's the significance of the number 144,000? Well, 144,000, I'm not great at math, but the basic idea is this is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Okay? I got my mathematicians nodding at me. That's great. 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, and it's the number of the apostles. In other words, it's the number of the people of God. And a thousand simply means a lot, a full amount. It's not meant to indicate exactly a thousand, no more or no less. When God says in Psalm 50 that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that doesn't mean that when you get to the 1,001st hill, he doesn't own those cattle. Right? And when God says that his steadfast love will endure to a thousand generations, it doesn't mean that if you're part of the thousand and first generation, well, you're out of luck. A thousand just means a lot, a full amount. So here we have the full number of the people of God, 12 times 12 times a thousand, 144,000. This is the perfect ideal Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, making up a people of 12 times 12,000. And when the tribes are grouped together in their thousands in Scripture, 
that's almost always a military roll call that's happening. When Israel gathered for war, they're organized into their groups of thousands. Then a census was taken to identify the strength of the army. This is the full number here of God's holy army, his people, Israel. So I take it that this 144,000, narrowly considered, like in the most specific sense we can, is the Christians, primarily Jewish Christians, living in or around Jerusalem leading up to 70 AD. If we let our minds go back to the Olivet Discourse, what Jesus taught, we saw that in the fall in Matthew 24, but you also see it in Luke 21 and Mark 13. Jesus warned his followers who were living in that area. He said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So Jesus tells his people, when you see this stuff happening, get out. Because right after this will be a time of great tribulation in Jerusalem. And history tells us that the Christians left Jerusalem. They were not destroyed in AD 70 because they remembered what Jesus said and they left. A, a large group of them went to Pella. Some of them went to other places, but they left. And the historians say not one Christian died in the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. But I think we can also broaden out our understanding of this group a bit too. Remember that this is a vision. Okay, the things that we're hearing and seeing are symbolic. When John hears the number 144,000, this is God's way of telling him that he will preserve his people. 144,000 is a perfect representation of Israel. It's a holy army, ready to go to battle, ready to conquer the world with the gospel. In other words, this is the church in seed form. The church begins with Jews who become Christians, and it spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As John has this vision, as he writes Revelation, we're still in the transition time between the Jewish age and the church age, between the old covenant and the new covenant. So looked at from one angle, this group is the remnant of Israel, the 144,000 that God is preserving while the rest of the nation of Israel is judged. But looked at from another angle, this is the church. Jew and Gentile together, forming the true Israel, the Israel of God, that is by faith in Jesus. So now we come to a verse like verse 9. Look at Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So this multitude is waving palm branches like the crowds who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. But this multitude is not fickle like the Jerusalem crowd. This is the true people of the Lamb who worship him in spirit and in truth. And they are the ones who are, are coming out of great tribulation. It's as if John is watching them coming out so that they do not fall under the judgment. So picture the judgment 
already underway. The Romans have surrounded the city. The conflict in the city has begun, but the worst hasn't yet fallen, and they are able to come out. And this great multitude is the church. If we're asking narrowly again, who is this great multitude? It's the church. It's people from every nation who worship the Lamb, just like the 144,000 narrowly considered is Jewish Christians before 70 AD. So the great multitude narrowly considered is the church. However, I don't think we should really draw a sharp distinction between these two groups. It's like if I point to the trunk of a tree and I say, this is a tree. And then I point to the branches of the tree and I say, this is a tree. I could call one the trunk and call the other branches, but it's a tree. The 144,000 are the Jewish Christians. And out of that springs then the church, but it's all the church. Notice how John carefully describes this. In verse 4, John says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Then in verse 9, John says, I looked and beheld a great multitude. This is a pattern that John uses a number of times in the book of Revelation. First he hears, then he sees. And it seems like two different things, but it turns out they're really the same. Let me give you a couple examples. In chapter 5, John hears one of the elders tell him to look because the lion of the tribe of Judah has come. But when John looks, he tells us, I saw a lamb standing. He heard lion, but he saw lamb. And the lion and the lamb are one and the same. It's Jesus. It happens again in chapter 21. One of the angels says to John, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Then John says, He carried me away and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. He heard bride, but he saw the city. Because the bride is the city. It's the dwelling place of God. And so here in chapter 7, in verse 4, John hears 144,000, but in verse 9, he looked and he saw a great multitude. It's the people of God. It's the full number of Israel. It's the mighty holy army of God. It's the church. It's God's people who escape his judgment because they're his people and they've been marked, sealed for protection. I think that Paul can help us make sense of this in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 9, Paul expresses his love for his fellow countrymen, the Jewish people. And then he says this. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he's saying there are ethnic Jews, ethnic Israelites, who aren't really part of Israel. What does he mean? This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In God's 
economy, those who are really Israel are those who have faith in Jesus. Paul's saying that the true Israel is made up of those of the promise, those who have faith. It's not simply ethnic Jews. It's the 144,000 and the great multitude. It's the perfect ideal Israel made up of those who worship the Lamb, Jesus. Paul says that the chosen people, this is still in Romans 9, he says the chosen people are us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Right, so he's, he's saying God is faithful to keep his promises to Israel, but Israel isn't who you thought it was. Then he explains how the Old Testament actually prophesied this. He says, as indeed he says in Hosea, so he's quoting the prophet Hosea, those who were not my people, okay, who's that? That's the Gentiles. I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So they're going to be called sons of God. Okay? So we have, in the Old Testament, you have really two groups that are called not his people. You have Gentiles are not his people. And then Jews who show themselves to not truly be followers of God are also not my people. But those who are going to be his people, who were not my people, that's the Gentiles. And then he quotes Isaiah. So this is Paul still in Romans quoting Isaiah. He says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So the sons of God or the sons of Israel that Hosea and Isaiah refer to, Paul says ultimately this is the church. It's Jews and Gentiles who have faith in Jesus and are now the sons of God. Isaiah says that God will preserve a remnant when the judgment falls on Israel. Isaiah is talking about events that happened a long time before Jesus. Okay, The Assyrians coming to attack Israel. That's what Isaiah is talking about. But Paul takes what Isaiah says and he applies that concept to his own day. What's going on in Paul's day? <laughs> the judgment that's about to fall on Israel is not from the Assyrians, it's from the Romans. It's the Roman invasion, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that's about to happen. And Paul says that God has preserved a remnant. And that remnant, the sons of God, is now made up of Jews and Gentiles. This is Paul's argument. And as Paul goes on in the next chapter, he says, For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the Jewish age is coming to an end. The church age has begun. So the distinction between Jew and Gentile is gone. And then in chapter 11, Paul asks the question, Has God rejected his people? Right? Is God done with Israel? Has he just said, okay, all of you ethnic Israelites, I'm done with you. And Paul's answer is, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul's saying, look, I'm a Jew and I'm part of the church. 
but I'm part of the church by faith. It's not that God has excluded all Jews. They just have to come by Christ because that's how you become part of the church. And he continues on. He says, he gives the example of Elijah. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Okay, the Old Testament prophet. How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? Paul asks. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And that, so in Elijah's day, God preserved a faithful remnant before the judgment fell on his people. Okay? And then listen to what Paul says next. So too, at the present time, in our day, Paul says, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Remember what Paul quoted from Isaiah. God preserves a remnant for himself when the judgment's about to fall. And here again, a remnant. The 144,000. So back in Revelation 7, what happens to this group? Verses 15 to 17 paint the picture of blessing for these people. They come out of Jerusalem. They come out of that place of great tribulation and they don't experience it because they've been marked by God for protection because they're faithful to, him, to Jesus. And so now the description is they're in God's presence where they find shelter and protection. There's no hunger, there's no thirst. And the greatest blessing of all is that the lamb will be their shepherd. And that's why we see these songs of worship and praise here at the end of Revelation 7. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. There's a lot more that could be said about that. But what I wanna do is take the rest of our time to say, what does this have to do with us today? Well, anytime we look at the story of how God acts in the world, it helps us to understand both him and the world better. So I want us to kind of take the time to think about what we've seen. And there's three practical applications I want us to see from this text. First of all, God's sovereignty and providence. We saw in this passage that God withheld his judgment until a specific time. He waited until his people were sealed before sending the judgment. It was as if the world was crying out for the judgment to come because the offense was so bad, re the rejection and killing of Jesus. And the martyrs we saw earlier were crying out for justice. Remember, they're, uh, they're before the throne of God and they're crying out how long. But God waits until the right time. He's not impatient. He's not touchy. He's not flying off the handle. He's acting at just the right time. This is his sovereignty and providence at work. And this also tells us something about the way the world is. Some people have a mechanistic view of the world. They, they view the world as a machine. If you do X, then you'll get Y. But that's not right at all. God is personally involved in the world. Some people view the world in an evolutionary way. That that the world just randomly by chance came into existence and that that's how it continues to operate. But that's absolutely antithetical to the biblical worldview. The Bible won't allow that kind of nonsense. God is actively involved in the world. Blessing and cursing. He's in relationship with his creation. The way that God's sovereignty 
on the one hand and man's will on the other interact is something that we have trouble understanding. But there are some things that we know for certain from scripture. God is completely sovereign. And at the same time, man is responsible for his actions. So Joseph's brothers sell Joseph into slavery and Joseph can say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In Revelation, we've been talking about God judging Israel by means of the Roman Empire. And just a few minutes ago, we saw Paul quote Isaiah 10 regarding God using Assyria to judge his people. Paul applied that to the current situation with the Roman Empire in his day. Well, in Isaiah 10, God calls Assyria the rod of my anger. God was going to use them as a tool to exercise his judgment. But in the same context, in Isaiah 10, God says regarding the king of Assyria that he does not so intend and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. See, the king of Assyria had evil intentions, but God would use him as the rod of his anger. How does that help us today? I'm going to go back to a Dutch Puritan to help us answer this. This is Wilhelmus Abrakel. He says, be not fearful of creatures as they cannot initiate their own motion. It is God alone who governs and controls them. Who would fear a sword, stick, or stone when it's lying upon the ground and does not move since it's not in anyone's hand? In other words, if you see a, a, a weapon laying there on the floor, and there's nobody using it, it's not going to hurt you, right? Well, what does God say about the king of Assyria? He's the rod of my anger. He's a tool that I'm using. See, the tool is in God's hand. The Roman Empire would similarly be used by God to punish Israel. And today, look around our world, Evil rulers lead their nations to do evil things, but they're not outside God's control. We can trust that even when things look bleak, God is using them to accomplish his will. So Brockle goes on to say, is he not your father? Has he not loved you with an everlasting love? Behold, in love, he caused this evil to come upon you. He has compassion upon you, is merciful towards you, is with you in your affliction, knows your distress, sees your tears, and hears your cries, he will deliver you at his time and in his manner. The second application that I want us to draw this morning is that of God's faithfulness. This chapter speaks loudly of God's faithfulness. God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And the vast majority of Abraham's descendants we see over and over. They broke that covenant. In Jesus' day, that covenant unfaithfulness came to a head as they rejected and killed Jesus, the Messiah. But God is still faithful. When God revealed his name to Moses as I am, John Preston says that God was saying, what I was to them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same I will be to you, Moses. So what God was to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
and Moses that he will be to us today because he does not change. In order to be able to keep the covenant, the father sent the son to earth to become a man, a Jewish man who would be Israel's rightful king and not a king like any of the others because all the other kings were covenant breakers. See, Jesus was perfectly faithful to God's law, and so he could be the representative of his people. And now we have covenant keepers on both sides of the covenant. You had God the Father, but every Israelite was a covenant breaker. Every Israelite king who stood as a representative of his people was a covenant breaker until the man Jesus. And now we have covenant keepers on both sides of the covenant. God the Father is the covenant keeper. Jesus is the covenant keeping man. So when we see the true Israel, the true people of God, we're seeing the result of Jesus' faithfulness to the covenant. All those who belong to Jesus are part of God's people. All those who have faith in him, that's the true Israel. The fact that Jew and Gentile are now together considered the people of God is evidence of God's faithfulness. Now, apply that to yourself. If you belong to Jesus, if you're trusting him for salvation, then he has given you certain promises. He's a promise-keeping God. The Puritan Thomas Manton said this about the promises of God, and I think this is helpful. He says, every promise is built upon four pillars. He's talking about the promises of God here. Number one, God's justice or holiness, which will not suffer him to deceive. The word suffer there means allow. So God's justice or holiness will will not suffer him to deceive. Number two, his grace or goodness, which will not suffer him to forget. Number three, his truth, which will not suffer him to change. And number four, his power, which makes him able to accomplish. Because of who God is, you can have confidence in his promises. In our community group, we've been reading through Pilgrim's Progress with the kids. And recently we read the chapter where Christian and Hopeful find themselves imprisoned in Doubting Castle. Okay, we all understand that as Christians along the journey, we face doubts. We have times where we're doubting God and they're imprisoned in Doubting Castle and uh, it's ruled by giant despair. Okay, and they remain trapped there until Christian remembers something he had forgotten. And here's how John Bunyan tells the story. Around midnight, Christian and Hopeful began to pray and continued till almost the break of day. Shortly before the sun came up, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in this passionate speech. What a fool I am to lie in a stinking dungeon when I might instead walk at liberty. I have a key called promise that I believe will open any lock in Doubting Castle. See, sure enough, all Christian had to do was to remember the promise that he had already been given. The key to escaping Doubting Castle was to remember God's promises. And you can look at how God has been faithful to his people in the pages of Scripture, and you can know that he'll be faithful to you. He'll keep his promises. You can trust him. Even when the circumstances don't look like it, God will be faithful. He'll keep his promises. 
the last thing this morning by way of application is this, kingdom growth. We should see that God wins. His kingdom will grow. It will expand until it fills the whole earth. The 144,000 is actually seen to be a great multitude that no one could number. All of the hatred of the Jews and the power of the Roman Empire could not stop the kingdom of God. This little, seemingly insignificant group of followers of Jesus would, within a couple of centuries, grow to be the dominant faith in the empire. And Christianity has shaped the Western world in profound ways. David Chilton, writing in 1987, wrote this. And I think these are helpful words for us to hear today. For more than a century, Christianity has been plagued by an altogether unwarranted defeatism. We have believed in the depravity of man more than in the sovereignty of God. We have more faith in an unregenerate creature's power to resist God's word than in the power of the almighty creator to turn a man's heart according to his will. Such an impotent attitude has not always characterized God's people. Charles Spurgeon encouraged a gathering of missionaries with these words. So now this is Spurgeon. I myself believe that King Jesus will reign and the idols be utterly abolished, but I expect the same power which turned the world upside down once will still continue to do it. The Holy Ghost would never suffer the imputation to rest upon his holy name that he was not able to convert the world. Now, admittedly, as you look around at our culture today, it's easy to be pessimistic. The moral fabric of our culture has disintegrated. I mean, if you're watching the news, you're seeing a nominee for the Supreme Court who can't tell you what a woman is or when life begins. Nobody that stupid should be on the court. And I'm saying that in the biblical sense. That's stupidity. That's foolishness. That's a culture that has thrown off God's law. It doesn't seem like Christ's kingdom is growing. It doesn't seem to be winning. But it didn't look that way in first century Jerusalem either. God specializes in impossible situations and he will bring his plans to pass. He will be faithful to his people. He will see the whole world bow the knee to his king, Jesus. Let me finish this is a longer quote, four slides, but this is B.B. Warfield, and I think this is a really helpful thing for us to hear and to finish with this morning. Warfield says, you must not fancy then that God sits helplessly by while the world which he has created for himself hurtles hopelessly to destruction, and he is able only to snatch with difficulty here and there a brand from the universal burning. The world does not govern him in a single one of his acts. He governs it and leads it steadily onward to the end which from the beginning or ever a beam of it had been laid, he had determined for it. Through all the years, one increasing purpose runs, one increasing purpose. The kingdoms of the earth become ever more and more the kingdom of our God and his Christ. The process may be slow, 
The progress may appear to our impatient eyes to lag. But it is God who is building, and under his hands the structure rises as steadily as it does slowly. And in due time, the capstone shall be set into its place, and to our astonished eyes shall be revealed nothing less than a saved world. That should give us confidence to walk faithfully today. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we see the story of the book of Revelation unfold and we recognize that you are a God who is faithful, who keeps his promises, I pray that that would encourage our hearts this morning, that we would recognize that you will be victorious, that you will see this entire world bow the knee to your king. We thank you that you keep your promises, that we can trust you, that we can have confidence in who you are because you do not change. Help us to be people who believe what you have said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.